lately, I've developed a fondness for audiobooks. So I figured I will also provide an audio version of my blog post for those who like to listen to stories rather than read them. The title of this story is Masa's Millions Have Left Oyo's Ritesh Oho. Let me begin with a disclosure. My name is Ashish Agrawal and I'm the author of this post. I'm also the registered owner of oyohotel.com since September 2013. Despite the similarity in these names with Ritesh Agarwal or oyohotels.com, there is no relation between them. This post is merely a satirical attempt at preaching armchair strategy based on true events. For the written version of this post, please visit blogmykarma.com. Now, on to the actual story. Back in the 1990s, I absolutely enjoyed watching Malamal, a Hindi movie where Nasiruddin Shah plays the main protagonist, Raj. Only recently, I discovered that Malamal was a remake of the 1985 American movie Brewster's Millions, which in itself was a movie adaptation of a namesake 1902 novel. Since the time the novel was originally written, it has had at least 13 adaptations indicating how the concept transcends countries, languages, and cultures. When I first saw the movie, it seemed like an amazingly entertaining piece of fiction. Now, much later, I realized that life is stranger than fiction. Just like Jack Slater in Last Action Hero, the story and characters of Brewster's Millions have emerged from real life into real life. Even in real life, they transcend countries, languages, and cultures. In real life, the role of Raj and Brewster have been played by many different people. But across those stories, only one man has played the role of the person bequeathing millions to them. I'm going to ruin the suspense for you. That man is SoftBank's Masa-san. I can imagine how you might feel by what you have heard so far. But I assure you that you are not a victim of clickbait. This is not a movie review, despite the numerous movie references in the story. I'm a little old-fashioned to still believe in slow build-ups rather than the instant gratification that my nine-year-old son seeks. So please bear with me and continue to read for eventual gratification. Prologue, setting the stage of millions. For people unfamiliar with the novel Brewster's Millions, let's take an aside for a paraphrase synopsis. In the 1902 novel, Montgomery Brewster inherits $1 million from his rich grandfather. Shortly after that, Brewster inherits an additional $7 million from another uncle. But these $7 million come with a few conditions. Brewster is first required to spend every penny of his grandfather's million within one year, resulting in no assets or property held from the wealth at the end of that time. If Brewster meets these terms, he will gain the full $7 million. If he fails, he remains penniless. Brewster is required to demonstrate business sense by obtaining good value for the money he spends. Limiting his donations to charity, his losses to gambling, and the value of his tips to waiters and cab drivers. Moreover, Brewster is sworn to secrecy and cannot tell anyone why he is living to excess. Working against him are his well-meaning friends who try repeatedly to limit his losses and extravagance even as they share in his luxurious lifestyle. If you're anything like me, then you likely prefer watching movie adaptation of movies over reading the original books. In this case, 
you don't even have to feel guilty to admit this to snobs who claim otherwise. Because according to one reviewer, the novel freely disparages anyone who is non-white, apparently not uncommon in literary work for the time when it was written. At the risk of being repetitive, following is a synopsis of the movie adaptation Malamal, which is impressively identical to Brewster's Millions. The main protagonist, Raj, inherits 3.3 billion rupees from his grandfather. However, the inheritance comes with the condition that Raj needs to spend 300 million of it in 30 days to get the remaining 3 billion. Raj's grandfather, in a video recording, lists out the rules and motivations for putting Raj into this strange predicament. The terms themselves are fairly similar to those in the novel, except for some artistic liberty common across the Hindi and English adaptations. The movie version includes a wimp clause that offers Raj 10 million rupees with no strings attached if he walks away from the challenge. Now imagine that numerous founders of SoftBank portfolio companies are modern-day boosters. SoftBank's Masa-san is the rich uncle. Early investors are the rich grandfather bequeathing the initial million. Early employees and execs of the portfolio companies are the well-meaning friends. However, in real life, both the grandfather and well-meaning friends are benefiting from the resulting extravagance. Confused? I guess the hallmark of every story is to confuse the audience and bring it all together gradually. Section title. Masa is just the Rita Hayworth of this story. In real life, within three minutes of learning about the terms of his inheritance, Raj accepts the challenge. Just five minutes after, Raj goes on a hiring spree, recruiting people that he does not need. He offers them salaries that nobody can otherwise afford. Since Raj is phoned to secrecy, he does not tell any of these recruits that he will have to lay them off, let alone be able to afford those crazy salaries in just 30 days when he has successfully spent the initial 300 million rupees to win the 3 billion rupees. Over the course of spending these 300 million rupees, Raj even fulfills some of his childhood dreams like playing cricket with star cricketer Sunil Gavaskar. Similarly, in real life, Immediately after accepting Masa's funding, his Brewsters have dutifully gone to town spending millions, often without building any assets, just like the movie, in their quest for 10xing their riches. Just like Raj, the real-life Brewsters are also living their childhood dreams as they spend these millions. Why else would Adam fly on a chartered international flight with marijuana in tow? Or why would Oyo buy the Hooters Casino Hotel? High five if most of the money came from Oyo's investment partners rather than Oyo's own balance sheet. There was however one big catch for these real-life Brewsters. While playing the rich uncle to many young founders, Masa, unlike the real uncles, seems to have only partly explained the conditions of his benevolence to the beneficiaries. The specific omission dawned upon Masa when Brewster Adam Newman of WeWork failed the challenge despite successfully spending all of Masa's benevolence. Masa quickly corrected the omission by decreeing a new condition to all his Brewsters, the condition of demonstrating business sense even during the go-broke shenanigans focused on chasing growth. Nevertheless, like a good uncle, initially Masa assured a $1.7 billion payday to Adam, only to later renege on it, making nephew Adam want to sue Uncle Masa. 
Time for another aside, this time on Rita Hayworth. You might know about the novel titled Rita Hayworth and Shawshank Redemption, at least from its popular movie adaptation. Rita Hayworth had very little to do in that story, despite receiving a mention in the book title. The story itself was focused on the main protagonist, Andy Dufresne, and his prison escape. Albeit, Rita Hayworth was part of Andy's get-out-of-jail plan by being responsible for hiding the big hole in Andy's prison cell. Likewise, Masa has very little to do in the story, despite receiving a mention in the title. And Adam merely appears in a supporting role in the story. The story itself is focused on the Oyo Hotel's founder, Ritesh Agarwal. Masa is the Rita Hayworth of the story. Except Masa is likely to further trap Ritesh in his prison cell instead of serving as his get-out-of-jail card. After all, a similar get-out-of-jail card bounced for cousin Adam, serving as a rude awakening call for Ritesh. You might wonder why I would say this. Ingeniously, Ritesh was on his Oyo journey of providing on-your-own independence to travelers. Instead, ingenuously, Ritesh has been left Oho, that means on his own, by Uncle Masa. However, Masa arguably disingenuously used Ritesh as a willing pawn in a three-dimensional game of chess for financially engineering paper gains to fund far bigger vision crusades. Ritesh ended up borrowing against his entire Oyo stake to justify the inflated valuation for Uncle Masa while enriching his early investors in the process. Uncle Masa hit a master stroke by offering to be on the poster of Ritesh's prison cell while getting Ritesh to bet everything, including the clothes on his back. Section title For his glory walks hand in hand with his doom. Befitting to this story is a quote from the movie Troy, said by Thetis to her son Achilles. If you stay in Larissa, you'll find peace. You'll find a wonderful woman and you will have sons and daughters who will have children. And they'll all love you and remember your name. But when your children are dead and their children after them, your name will be forgotten. If you go to Troy, glory will be yours. They will write stories about your victories in thousands of years. And the world will remember your name. But if you go to Troy, you will never come back. For your glory walks hand in hand with your doom. Very few people get an opportunity in their lifetime to make a choice similar to Achilles. Ritesh got this opportunity. He could have kept his 10% stake in Oyo and found peace. On even a bad day, he would have been a hundred millionaire running a valued as well as a valuable business. But he would have been forgotten. So he chose to play a double or nothing bet through a share buyback with borrowed money. There will be stories written about him either as HBS case studies covering this poor decision or accolades and titles in the media if his bet pays off. Ritesh chose to make his glory walk hand in hand with his doom. The jury on glory or doom is still out. Many signs are already pointing towards Oyo's losing battle towards maintaining the $10 billion valuation. The blow from the COVID-19 pandemic could send the valuation spiraling down even further. So the likely outcome would be that Uncle Masa will save the day by spending pennies on the dollar to bail the loan, acquiring ownership of the collateral that is Ritesh's Oyo stock. This would leave Ritesh with a choice between A. Walking away empty-handed from the company he founded because I hear that unlike cousin Adam, Ritesh has not yet 
taken advantage of any secondary sale transactions, or B, convincing the board to give him a sizable stock grant as part of founder CEO compensation. But then not everyone is Elon Musk. Adam initially appeared to have pulled off the best parts of both the above options, but he ultimately failed at it, making me wonder that perhaps there really is a God. Otherwise, I usually thank God for making me an atheist. The novel Brewster's Millions has an interesting quote. Any man who can spend a million a year and have nothing to show for it don't need a recommendation from anybody. He's in a class by himself and it's a business that no one else can give him a pointer about. I admire Ritesh for doing just that without the need for a recommendation from anybody, let alone yours truly. In fact, I may have opted for the wimp clause when faced with a similar situation. Nevertheless, Internet ink is permanent, yet cheap, so I will not hesitate in spilling some ink in playing armchair strategist. Section title How did Brewster go to war in Troy and end up behind bars at Shawshank? Because he wanted to catch a big fish. I know, I know, that's too many movie references with very different narratives. But then it is so hard to fit star entrepreneurs in one single narrative. Steve Jobs already told us about the crazy ones who do not follow conventional narratives. Yet they prove that whoever controls the narrative controls the world. What really is Oyo's narrative and how did it evolve? I obviously do not have any inside knowledge. So I'm going to speculate a lot on what must have happened behind the scenes. A Brewster, that means Ritesh, likely started with a very reasonable and simple narrative. If I understand correctly, the narrative was, budget hotels have a lot of perishable inventory that goes to waste. High contribution margins can be generated by selling this inventory. Selling this inventory would require focusing on basics such as cleanliness, breakfast, and Wi-Fi. These basics would need to be backed with a brand to signal consistency and trust. The branded product could be sold across first-party and third-party channels. Utilizing all booking channels would require controlling supply in real time. All of the above steps are repeatable at scale. Scale would allow creating the OYO tax, like the AWS tax, by creating a clearinghouse for this inventory. Optimizations at scale would require comparative modes and even higher profits. The ecosystem has opportunity for lots of adjacent revenue streams. The narrative actually made a lot of sense. It could have created sustainable and large business. Most entrepreneurs would build such a business by optimizing for two and only two of the following three variables. Fast, good, and cheap. Oyo instead conceived a new one, huge. And then Masa tacked on another, fast. In the beginning, Ritesh likely focused on good and cheap. Then came along early investors who often exist by virtue of upward deal flow. This upward deal flow requires the ability to tell tales taller than those told by Edward Bloom in the movie Big Fish. Lovely movie, watch it and thank me later. The tall tales told by VCs often rely on the hugeness of an opportunity. There is likely even a self-affirmation that VCs probably use before falling asleep every night. A million dollars isn't cool. You know what's cool? A billion dollars. This line was made quite popular by the movie, The Social Network. 
WeWork made it cool by emphasizing target addressable market instead of service addressable market or serviceable obtainable market. Oyo made it cool by focusing on becoming the biggest hotel chain in the world rather than the most valued hotel chain in the world, which is very different from valuable. Uncle Masa is obviously attracted to huge and then he does whatever it takes to make it go fast. If you wouldn't agree, then he would go to your competitor who would. Ritesh had no choice but to shift focus to huge and fast. However, huge and fast are steroids which, if left unmanaged, have lethal side effects on any narrative. In Oyo's case, I speculate the side effects to be quite egregious. The market has more supply than demand. Now Oyo owns this supply in its entirety in many markets. Contribution margins are negative because of minimum guarantees on supply side and discounts on demand side. Basics of cleanliness, breakfast and Wi-Fi are hard to secure at scale when you rely on someone else for fulfillment. Brands cannot be built with unfulfilled promises to customers or suppliers. Oyo has become just another supplier on expensive third-party OTA channels with unclear uptake to its first-party channel, especially in international markets. Oyo's real-time inventory info is clearly not flawless. All of the mistakes have been repeated at scale, and under the plausibly high-margin clearinghouse facade, Oyo has actually become a low-margin hotel operator, which is much harder business and has nothing to do with tech. Excessive VC funding has led to creation of meet modes around Sandcastle. Adjacent revenue streams have been a distraction. So what does an OU do? Figure out what should be written on their tombstone. Early in my career, while interviewing for a role, I cleared multiple rounds focused on everything from case studies, impromptu presentations, quant and qual analysis, and also what I like to call intelligent bullshitting. I must have done well because I progressed through the stages and the interviewers had already started selling me on the company and the role. Then for my final interview with the senior exec at the company, I was asked, if you get hit by a bus and die tomorrow, what would be written on your tombstone? I hated the question at that time. To be honest, I did not even understand the question. I mumbled something and obviously did not get the job. I attribute the outcome entirely on my inability to understand the depth of this question. Not that understanding the question back then would have made any difference. I had not done anything in life until then to even deserve a tombstone. Now that I understand the question, if Oyo's tombstone was written today, it would say, here lies the world's best PR team that was extremely good at raising venture capital. Following is a taste of the mumbo-jumbo from Oyo's PR team to create the perception of Oyo as a tech-based clearinghouse just for using the age-old commoditized tool of dynamic pricing. Oyo's algorithms analyze 144,000 data points every hour and makes 60 million price changes every day with a prediction accuracy of 97%. The media actually lapped up this nonsense in great strides. On second thoughts, would anyone care about what's written on Oyo's tombstone? I suspect if anyone will miss Oyo as a company or product. This is quite contrary to the often criticized ride-sharing companies. 
Despite the accelerated valuations that Uber and Lyft got at IPO, the underlying product offering, which is geolocation-based real-time marketplace for rides, is here to stay. Even Airbnb, closer to Oyo in the hospitality space, has a moat in the form of supply and demand that has been organically curated through reviews. The best Oyo can hope to do is out-execute other players in the franchising space. But it has failed to do so until now. So if Oyo goes away, hotel owners will go back to their old label or become a franchisee of a traditional hotel chain. Customers will continue to book rooms through other online travel agencies. So let me ask the question differently. What should Oyo want their tombstone to say? Heck, they should say that there is no tombstone. But define death when you are on life support needs desperate measures. The armchair strategist in me has four suggestions for Oyo. The first suggestion is retreat immediately from markets with the mature hospitality industry. I never understood why Oyo would launch its growth market business model in mature markets such as the US. There are only two kinds of private label hotels in the US, the good kind and the bad kind. The good kind take pride in being boutique hotels, which by definition eliminates the likelihood that they want to be part of a chain. The bad kind are private not by choice, but rather because no franchisor would want them to be a part of their chain. So Oyo is left with either A, rehabilitating bad kind of private label inventory that nobody wants, which would come at an extreme risk to brand safety, or B, poaching franchises of established hotel chains by purely relying on out-executing the mature hotel chains. Neither really seem like paths that will offer the kind of return on capital that forms the basis of Oyo's existence. Oyo should immediately cut its losses by retreating from such markets. There will be opportunities in the future to re-enter with a market-specific product or niche, for example, a chain of senior homes. Number two, cull the Oyo supply. In growth markets such as India, Oyo should scale back its inventory dramatically to ensure high utilization rates without compromising margins. I've personally stayed at hotel properties before as well as after they became Oyo properties. Before Oyo, such hotels had higher price with extremely reliable service. After Oyo, the prices have gone down, but so has the quality of service likely as a means to boost margins by controlling costs with trimmed staff and amenities. Number three, reshape their brand promise. The Oyo brand has become like a degree from the University of Phoenix. With both brands, the perceived value of the underlying product is often lower when it carries that brand name rather than when it does not. Oyo either needs to A, only include inventory where it can be extremely certain of delivering on its current brand promise of reliability and consistency, likely resulting in a far smaller footprint, or B, reposition its brand promise to mean extreme transparency with an option for reparations upon customer issues. Number four, rely exclusively on their first party sales channel. Oyo should immediately go the Southwest Airlines way of not listing with aggregation portals. They have the resources to market their brand and acquire customers exclusively through their own website or mobile app. This would simplify operations, reduce costs, and increase the lifetime value of each acquired customer. Exclusivity can be a powerful moat 
opening up opportunities for offering highly creative products to customers. Epilogue. What will show Ritesh the money? The $3 billion question is, can any strategy show Ritesh the money? Oyo's valuation needs to be at least $10 billion for Ritesh to see any money. Ritesh has a greater incentive to maintain Oyo's hugeness, at least in perception, in order to find a bigger fool. Any strategy that drops the valuation below $10 million, even if it makes Oyo sustainable and profitable, is unlikely to align with Ritesh's incentives. I wonder how Ritesh would respond to the question, a party hai ya broker? Are you the principal or the agent? But his answer does not really matter. Because regardless, while on his journey to leave you on your own, Ritesh has been left on his own. I hope you reached until this point of my audio recording. Please do leave your feedback by visiting blogmykarma.com. That is blogmykarma.com without any spaces. I have several other posts on my blog. Please leave your comments if you're interested in an audio version of any of my other posts. Thank you for listening.